I regret with all my heart what my hand has done. For I have taken what I cannot return. If only I could bend back the hands on that ageless clock and change the past. Ah, but alas, I am not the keeper of time, only a small part of history and the legacy of mankind's fall from grace. I'm sorry, Your Honor. Disclaimer, in this chapter we will be discussing the murder of a number of young adults. The details may be triggering for some listeners. This will be the only warning. Please do not listen if you are sensitive to this topic. So it's Halloween. Happy Halloween, everyone. Ooh, spooky. Spooky season is almost over. (laughs) So fans of the horror movie genre, or most fans, love the Scream movie franchise. Brie being, in my opinion, one of the biggest fans of Ghostface merchandise. There, there's so many of us out there. I don't even have a ghost face mask. I need a mask. You've got a jersey. You've got a... I'm sitting here staring at a shelf that's full of ghost face merchandise. But you see that skull head that I have on there? I want to put a mask on that. Wouldn't that be cool? Sure. Yeah. Big fan. Big fan. Got a jersey. Backpacks. Like bobbleheads. Other bags. Cups. Mugs. Limited edition. Limited edition movie. Halloween decorations. Like that was from the dollar store. Dollar store did good this year. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, there are fans everywhere, I guess, but Bree is a huge fan. So our story today actually started back when an aspiring screenwriter was watching an ABC interview um called Turning Point about the Gainesville Rippers crimes. And it left that screenwriter so shaken that it inspired him to write a screenplay that would later become Scream. Now, there were other crimes that have been compared to Scream movies, like the Scream Killers, that episode that you did. Yeah, the beginning, season one, I think. Yeah. But those murders are, they were inspired by these Scream movies. The actual Scream movie was originally inspired by today's story. So let's get into it. Hmm. Interesting. Do you know this one? Part of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do I know details? No. Cool. On August 20th, 1990, the beautiful university town of Gainesville, Florida, was ranked as being the 13th best place to live in the United States by Money Magazine. But by the end of the following week... American papers had renamed the town Grizzly Gainesville after the bodies of five young students had been discovered brutally murdered and mutilated as they slept in their apartments after one weekend of savagery perpetrated by one man. And just to set the atmosphere at that time, in 1990, Florida had just executed Ted Bundy the year before. Um, And a lot of the parents of university students Ted's Chi Omega attacks were still in their nightmares, I'm sure. So Danny Rowling's story seemed to confirm the idea that the environment in which they spend their formative years encourages the development of serial killers. It would be impossible to know the account of Rowling's childhood and not feel compassion for that kid who is abused, beaten, and bullied by an overbearing and disturbed father. 
It would be impossible not to feel anger towards his mother, who time and time again refused to take any action to protect her own son. But Danny was not that child when he brutally murdered five young people at the prime of their lives. And I wonder, were the psychological scars from his childhood so deep that he was unable to control his disgusting impulses? Danny would become known as the Gainesville Ripper. So it was 4 p.m. on Sunday, August 26, 1990. Gainesville police officer uh, Ray Barber was just about to sign off at the end of her shift when the communications officer called her on her car radio saying that there is a complaint about loud music, which is not unusual for this time of year. The new semester was about to begin and the kids were celebrating and had been all weekend. He also got a second call um, about what we refer to as a welfare check now where parents couldn't reach their daughter and was wanting the maintenance man at the apartment to let them in so he called for police assistance before letting the parents in the officer figured he would stop by on his way home when he drove into the courtyard at the Williamsburg village apartments the maintenance man was there to meet him as Barber got out of his car, the man told him he had a couple of anxious parents wanting him to open their daughter's apartment as they couldn't get her to answer the door, and that he wasn't willing to take responsibility himself. Barber was initially unconcerned as he received dozens of calls about missing kids who usually turned up unharmed with no idea about like what kind of anxiety they had caused. It was only when the parents, Frank and Patricia Powell, told him that their daughter Christina, who was 17 at the time, had known they were driving over from Jacksonville that morning and had not been seen by anyone since early Friday morning, even though her car was still parked nearby. So Barber began to feel uneasy and this feeling increased when the Powells told him that Christina's roommate, Sonia Larson, who was also 17, had not called her mother that day either. Reluctantly, the Powells agreed to wait outside the building as Barber and the maintenance man went up to the girls' second floor apartment. When bangs on the door produced no result, Barber attempted to open the front door using a master key, but for some reason it wouldn't work. He then broke one of the glass panes, uh, but that didn't help because the door was dead bolted. Now, with the glass broken, uh, this released a strong and unpleasant odor from within the apartment. There was a sense of urgency for Barbara to get inside now, so he and the maintenance man used their big boy brain and broke down the door. Barbara saw the bloodied naked body of a young woman posed grotesquely on a bed with her arms above her head. He found another young woman on the stairway down to the lower level of the apartment the women had been stabbed repeatedly, mutilated, and deliberately positioned for maximum shock effect. Back downstairs, the Powells anxiously waited for word from Barber. As soon as they saw his face and his eyes, they knew there would not be good news. Do you know, like, what position? Yep. Like, It's coming. Oh, is it coming? Yeah. Their first instinct was to go to their daughter... But Barber knew it was better for everyone if they didn't. He called in the double homicide unit and asked for someone from the Alachua Crisis Center to help the parents. And within minutes, they had 
The backup had arrived with as many as 20 law enforcement personnel, including the, the chief of police, Waylon Clifton Baldwin, and then closely behind them was media. So Lieutenant Sadie Darnell was given the task of being the media spokesperson, and all she could tell them was that the two young women had been murdered after someone apparently forced their way through their door sometime between 11.30 p.m. August 23rd and 4 p.m. August 26th. Long before the first headlines could be printed, word of the murders had spread throughout the Williamsburg Village apartments. Police did not publicly release their names, but the crowds that had gathered resumed whispering that the girls were freshmen, one from Palm Beach and the other from Jacksonville. No one knew them and all wondered how this could have happened without anyone hearing anything. One neighbor would later recall that he had heard someone showering and playing loud music early on Friday morning. It was George Michael's faith. Hmm? Then there was a loud banging sound. Oh, sorry. Is that a song? George, George Michael's oh, faith. faith. Gotta have faith, faith, faith. That's, I was like, what are you trying to tell me right now? I wonder if that's where they got the opening for Scream 3. Maybe. And she's in the shower. Yeah. And the music, and then Cotton comes home, and she thinks it's Cotton. Anyway, mm -hmm. no, you go. Sorry. I, it sounds just like that. Anyway. So the neighbor who heard that loud banging sound assumed that the girls had been hanging pictures on the wall, but police continued to work into the night questioning other residents, checking for fingerprints and other clues. The details of the crimes begin to circulate. One of the girls had been mutilated, something to do with her breasts, and fear and panic started to spread as the story traveled beyond the apartment block to the rest of the community before police had even finished packing up and sealing the area. They had been called to another site where they were joined by deputies uh, Keith O'Hara and Gail, Gail Barbara. Barbara? Yes. Not Barbara. Right. From the Gail county sheriff's office. Barbara. And that is Gail Weathers. Right? <laughs> Possibly. Probably. Possibly. For sure. But she's a sheriff. Right. But still. Right. So Barbara had spent the earlier part of the evening with her husband, Ray. Barbara? <laughs> Barbara. It's not Barbara. <laughs> no. My spell check is just killing me here. I knew it was Barbara. From the county sheriff's office. Barbara had spent the early part of her evening with her husband, Ray Barber, after he made oh, the gruesome discovery of Christina and Sonia's bodies. I was scrolling up because I was like, I swear to God that his name wasn't Gail. <laughs> no, it was <laughs> Ray. Um, so she would have liked to stay with them longer over there, but she was on the roster for the midnight shift. She hadn't been on long before dispatch called to ask them to drop by Krista Lee Hoyt's apartment, just in case. 18-year-old Krista worked the midnight shift as a records clerk at the county sheriff's office. She wasn't answering her phone, and by this time it was 12.30 a.m. Gail knew Krista well and was sure that there would be some logical explanation for why she hadn't called in. The chances of two people from the same family being present at two separate murder discoveries in such a short space of time would be just too coincidental. When deputies knocked on Krista's front door, there was no answer. They were almost relieved. She probably left for work already, they told themselves. But then they saw her car, 
which was an older model Nissan Sentra, parked nearby. So they knocked again, and then they tried the door, but it was locked. Hearing all the commotion, the apartment manager, Albert, <laughs> what? Sorry, I'm just like, I didn't mean to read ahead, but it's just like, Barbara, 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 <laughs> Barbara. <laughs> Sorry, you keep going. So hearing all the commotion, the manager, Albert Hoover, came out to investigate. And then the three of them went out to the back of the apartment Hoover knew something was wrong the moment he saw that the gate had been damaged and the chain-link fence was down. As O'Hara and Barber went further into the backyard, they told the manager to wait around the front for them. Once they established that there was no one in the yard, they tried the glass sliding door. It was locked from the inside. They noticed that the bamboo shades over the door did not reach the floor, so they bent down on their hands and knees to peer under the curtain. Through the beam of the flashlight, they could see what appeared to be a naked body seated on the edge of the bed. It was bent over at the waist with a small pool of blood at the feet, which were still in shoes and socks. Okay, wait, 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 wait. It was bent over at the waist, Mm -hmm. but seated on the edge of the bed? Yeah. So picture it. Like sideways? No. So picture it. You're sitting on the edge of the bed and you're bent over putting shoes on or something. Oh, so. Slumped over. Right. uh, Slumped over. still sitting. Okay, I get it. On the edge of the bed. But she had her socks and shoes on both feet. They came to the shocking realization that the body didn't have a head. God damn. The two officers ran back to the patrol car to notify the station. It was 1 a.m. by this point. Moments later, the first of the investigating team had arrived. Barbara and O'Hara quickly briefed Sergeant Baxter and Lieutenant uh, Noble. I believe that's how you say it. Noble? Nobles? Nobles. Telling them that they had heard water running in the apartment as there was a strong possibility that the killer was still inside. O'Hara and Barbara were told to take positions around the outside of the apartment while Baxter and Nobles waited for more backup to arrive. It was a half an hour before they were ready to enter the building, and when they entered through the front door, they moved slowly, ready for anything. The bathroom was first, and they could hear the drip-drip of the shower, but the running water the officers had first heard wasn't on anymore. Ooh, that's spooky. There was no one there. There were bloodstains on the floor of the shower. When they left the bathroom, they saw Krista's lifeless head facing them. Boo! Propped up. (laughs) Sorry. Propped up on a bookshelf in the bedroom, staring at them. Right? Like, do you think that scared the listeners? Totally. I'm I'm keeping it in. Yeah, for sure. In the bedroom, they saw the headless corpse of the beautiful Krista sitting at the end of the bed. On the bed next to her were her two nipples that had been sliced from her breasts. Barely able to breathe, they checked under the bed. They checked in the closets, and confident that the killer had gone, the two officers made their way back outside. As they walked out into the courtyard, they saw that the Gainesville police chief, Waylon Clifton, had arrived from the Williamsburg Village Apartments, along with many other officers. And when they turned around, 
There was more dead bodies. Reet, 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 reet. <laughs> we gotta make it spooky, right? I don't know. I, like total sound effects. I guess it's not like it's not a scary story. It's a true story. This episode is not for all viewers. Your discretion is advised. So, with a preliminary examination completed, it was time for the bodies to be removed. The county's chief investigator gave the order, but nothing could have prepared him for what he saw next. Gasp. One of the officers let out a growl when Krista was laid back. Oh, growl. Apart from the breast mutilation, it appeared that she had been carefully sliced from the breastbone to the pubic bone. Why did he growl? Just kind of like a, maybe more like a groan. Like, I don't know what they mean by these things. Growl. So all of the victim's underwear were missing. And a knife with a 46-inch blade had been used on all three girls. Shit. And the use of adhesive tape was evident, although it had been removed in both crime scenes. When the sheriff walked towards his car, the crowd of reporters had gathered while he was inside Krista's apartment. They met him and bombarded him with a barrage of questions. He told them some of the gruesome details before getting into his car to drive back to the station. By the afternoon, the information available to the press was strictly controlled. Already much of the vital information was well known to the public, though. Whatever bloodlust he had just awoken was only temporarily satiated by his previous murders. Uh, On August 27th, just two days after his prior attack, Danny broke into the apartment of Manny Taboda and Tracy <laughs> Pauls. Taboda was a large man weighing over 200 pounds, fought Shit. back, but, ran, but Danny eventually subdued and killed him. Tracy, who came down to investigate the source of the ruckus that had awoken her, ran smack dab into Danny as he was killing her roommate. She fled and locked herself in a room but Danny broke down the door. As with his previous victims, Danny taped her mouth and wrists, cutting her clothes off. Then he raped her before rolling her face down and stabbing her several times in the back. Danny took great care to pose her body, but left her roommate where he'd fallen. Because he was a heavy boy. Yeah. So obviously deep paranoia fell over Gainesville once the public had learned that it wasn't just a small brunettes being attacked but that a large man had also been slain it was clear that no one was safe from whatever monster this was and by this point the string of bizarre murders had attracted widespread media attention with scores of new outlets setting up shop in the quiet town and hounding students for ratings the students themselves began taking extra precautions from switching up their daily routine to studying and sleeping together in small groups Some bought baseball bats and mace and had extra locks installed on their doors and windows. Gun sales also soared as helicopters with searchlights scoured the city at nighttime in search of a killer. Not everyone was so brave, though. Overwhelmed by the brutality and nonstop media coverage of the crimes, some parents simply just withdrew their children altogether from school or transferred them since the murder spree began early in the fall semester. So a lengthy investigation had ensued with 6,500 leads and over 1,500 pieces of evidence. Initially, however, the police had very few credible leads to go on. They focused on a suspect named Edward Humphrey, 
who was brought in due to having been evicted from the apartment complex where Miss Pauls and Mr. T How did I say it? Taboda? Taboda. And Mr. Taboda lived, as well as his history of erratic behavior. By all accounts, Edward looked the part of a villain, his face having been horrifically scarred during a car accident where he'd attempted to run from a moving car. The media widely and repeatedly showed um, Edward's terrifying face. To make matters worse, the murders instantly stopped after Edward was taken into custody. Smart Danny! Right. So, lack, so despite a lack of physical evidence tying him to the crime scenes, police were certain that they had their man. They didn't. It was later determined that Edward was mentally ill and he, along with another suspect who did not receive the same amount of media attention, were completely exonerated of all implications of being involved in the murders. Around that same time, Danny, who had been camping out in the woods with souvenirs from his murders and financing his killing spree with a string of brazen robberies, was captured near the very apartment complexes he'd been breaking into. Detectives didn't know it at first, but later discovered that the tape recorder Danny had been found with had several confessions and explanations for his grisly crimes. Were they, was he making a movie? He wasn't making a movie, but he was definitely making confessionals on audio tape. And he was a musician, so he wrote songs. Um, he spoke to his dad a lot on the tapes. Um, like in person or like nope. to his dead dad? Just his dead dad. So we're going to play some of those right, right now. But there are some things that you just can't run from. And this being one of those. We tried aim for the lungs, straight through the rib cage, either there or the heart. But the best thing to do is hit the lungs. Pushed me away at a young age, Pop. I wanted to make you proud of me. I let you down. I'm sorry for that. Well, I'm going to sign off for a little bit. I got something I got to do. Then just up one day and say, okay, Dan, you're going to be a serial killer. No. No. Well, Lucifer, he got out. He was at me for a long time, knocking on the door to my mind. Year after year, just one thing after another, it just just got worse and worse and worse and one day I was about 35 years old and I just it just went chink and I went over the edge. I don't know what Gemini, the demon that came in my bedroom window in Shreveport, Louisiana, when I was going to church driving a Sunday school bus trying to live right, trying to do the right thing and, and love God with all my heart. And the, the best years of my life, I don't know what that what them things think. All I know is they don't wish us, they don't wish us any goodwill at all. They just want to see mankind destroyed. Welcome back. <laughs> it's all in all, I think the guy's pretty fucked up. I'm trying to be Halloween specially. Specially challenged. <laughs> just kidding. I think that, Is that rude? I think that we should have like special effects and stuff when we edit this. <laughs> With actual sound effects. I'm not saying you're not doing a great job, but... I am not doing that. With an overwhelming amount of evidence against uh, Danny, he was charged with several counts of murder in November 1990. In 1994, just prior to the start of his trial, Danny Rowling pled guilty to all the charges, telling the judge, there are some 
things that you just can't run from. He bragged that his motive for the killings was to become a superstar like Ted Bundy, who murdered co-eds at Chi Omega Sorority at Florida State University. If he expected to receive any leniency for the admission of his terrible crimes, he was sorely disappointed. Instead, he was sentenced to the death penalty on each and every count of murder he committed. The police were also able to tie Danny to an unsolved triple homicide in Shreveport, Louisiana that occurred on November 4, 1989. William Grissom, along with his daughter Julie and his eight-year-old grandson, Sean, had been brutally attacked in their home around dinner time. Just as in the previous cases, Danny had mutilated and posed Julie Grissom's body in a sexually provocative manner, which was his calling card. Which is fucked, because, like, that's... Disgusting. Yeah. So on October 25th, 2006, shortly after he'd exhausted his final appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, the serial killer-slash-rapist Daniel Rowling was executed by lethal injection at Florida State Prison. In a written statement given to detectives prior to his execution, Danny confessed to the murders of the Grissom family in Shreveport. Up until his final moments, Rowling showed no remorse whatsoever for his actions and refused to make any verbal statements or even offer an apology for his crimes to the relatives of his victims, many of whom who showed up to witness his death. Danny refused to make eye contact during his execution, humming hymns gently to himself as he was strapped in and the lethal drugs were administered. Across the road from the prison, dozens of onlookers gathered into groups waiting for word that he had passed away. It was the largest turnout for an execution in Florida since Ted Bundy. At 6.13 p.m., he was officially pronounced dead. Like on October 25th or... Yep. 2006? Yep. So, and, like, this was kind of the short version of the story. There's... Did they ever, like... More detail, but... Look into him, like, psychologically? Like, what Over the years, they did. It him? seems like he had, um, schizophrenia. He did he? A, yeah. And he was... He would be one that would be considered dissociative identity disorder did because he had a split personality hmm. supposedly what did he call his other personality do you know gemini was he a gemini no <laughs> he was not was his alter ego a gemini it's <laughs> i mean possibly was it, maybe it was born like who knows but he was actually diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder and borderline personality dis disorder and Aww. paraphilia so but pedophilia para paraphilia paraphilia so and i don't know like i don't know if he actually had another personality if that was legitimately a multiple personality situation but what I do know is he wouldn't talk at the beginning when he was first arrested he wouldn't talk and he befriended a cellmate it got to the point where this cellmate gained Danny's trust enough so that Danny said that I'll tell I'll confess I'll tell you my story but only through this cellmate so when the, he was being questioned the cellmate 
went with him and Danny would write on a piece of paper what he wanted the cellmate to say so the cellmate would speak. I feel like that's just him showing control. Manipulating. Yeah, antisocial behavior. Yeah. And so kind of to end off, I want to, there's a song that Danny Rowland had on the audio recordings and it just kind of shows his uh, morbid side. Side. I feel like every side. Every side of him is very morbid, but I'd like to. Here's a here's a glance behind his curtain. Right. (laughs) I don't know. So we'll play that little clip of the song, and then. back so yeah that's the story of uh danny rolling and the inspiration to the scream movies that we all love so much and uh the the sadness behind them honestly yeah the grossness i hope everyone has a safe and happy halloween and stay warm and super duper 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 spooky yes stay spooky spoopy and do you have any idea when season three will start? December. Sometime. What? Two months. That would be one month, Mom. Oh. <laughs> Fucking November already. Once this is released. 
So look for our season three premiere on December the 1st. Yep. Season three, baby. We'd like to take the time to thank you guys so much for joining us for our second season. The first season ended a little weird. We got evacuated due to wildfires. So it's almost, it's kind of nice to be able to end this season off on Halloween. On Halloween. Super spooky. Mm -hmm. And now we'll be able to get our bearings even a little bit more because there's a lot going on. As soon as we started to do this podcast, things started getting a little... A little mm-hmm. hectic. Especially with some of the cases that we decided to cases cover first. Like Sarah Boone, um, Delphi, <laughs> Brian Kohlberger. Mm-hmm. Like, things Adichway, are just weird. Like, there's so many cases that are still in the news and still kind of going through the court system that need to be updated and followed up on. But new crimes have been happening left, right, and I know. Well. And we haven't even touched on the new ones yeah. in a while. Yeah. And so that's what season three is going to be, December 1st. That's really great. And um, later this morning, we have the Delphi hearing. So that'll be interesting to see what happens with uh, Rick Allen's defense. And uh, we'll update you. Be, on. Won't be, won't be anytime soon, though. Probably past January. The trial? Just like uh, the judge said. The Trials new defense attorneys are going to need yeah. uh, a significant amount of time. So. End of 2024 at best. Word. But watch the Facebook page. I will definitely keep everybody updated and possibly do a deeper dive on all of this Delphi nonsense um, come next season. But in any case, I think that's a wrap. How do they say it in the screen movies? Cut it, Casper. That's a wrap. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and share with your friends. If you don't mind giving us a five-star rating, it will help our show grow. You can find us on Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram at True Crime Story Podcast, where the discussion can continue. If you wish to contact us, you may do so via email at truecrimestorypod at gmail.com. Remember to send in your podcast episodes, case suggestions, or requests. You can also check out our Patreon and buy me a coffee in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show. I'm Bree. And I'm Char. And we'll see you in the next season. Bye. Bye.